This morning we are continuing to study that system of theology commonly known as Calvinism. Having already examined in some detail the teachings of the first two points of Calvinism, total depravity and unconditional election, we're now ready to look at the next point, the third point of this system of theology, which in keeping with the acrostic tulip is represented by the letter L, which stands for limited atonement. Now, quite frankly, the doctrine of limited atonement is the most controversial of all the five points of Calvinism, even amongst those who would label themselves Calvinists. In fact, there are many Christians who would claim to be Calvinists, but who do not accept the doctrine of limited atonement, and therefore they prefer to call themselves four-point Calvinists as opposed to five-point Calvinists. And among those who do finally come to embrace all of the five points of Calvinism, the doctrine of limited atonement is usually the last one that they have come to accept. Now, at this point, some of you may be wondering, what in the world is he talking about? We don't even know what limited atonement means, so how do we know if we believe it or not? And so, without any further delay, let me introduce you to the doctrine of limited atonement by approaching it in much the same way we have approached the other previous two points of Calvinism, and that is by asking certain probing questions. First one being this, what is meant by the term limited atonement? That's the right place to begin. What's meant by the term limited atonement? Now, right off the bat, some people might be naturally suspicious of this doctrine, even if you don't know what it's about, simply because of its name, limited atonement. See, anytime you put the word limited with the word atonement, it sounds as if it's teaching that somehow limits or weakens the value of Christ's atoning death on the cross. But I can assure you that's not at all what Calvinists mean by limited atonement. No one who believes in the doctrine of limited atonement feels that there is anything at all deficient in Christ's sacrificial death. And so to avoid any unnecessary misunderstandings about its meaning, some Calvinists then prefer to call this doctrine by another name. They refer to it either as definite atonement or sometimes it's known as particular redemption because both of these expressions do reflect more accurately the real meaning of this teaching. And I agree. But for the sake of following the acrostic tulip, which I've been using throughout this series and will continue to use, I'll refer to this teaching today as limited atonement. So what exactly do Calvinists mean when they speak of limited atonement? Well, this teaching really boils down to one primary question, question being for whom was the atonement of Christ? For whom was the atonement of Christ made for? In other words, for whom did Jesus die? Did he die only for the elect or did he die for the whole world, meaning every single individual in the world? You see, those who believe in limited atonement say that when Jesus died on the cross, he was paying only for the sins of the elect and not anyone else's sins, which makes it then the extent of the atonement being limited and restricted to his sheep, his 
his people, and thus the name limited atonement. Now, I realize that if you have never heard of this teaching before that limits the atonement of Jesus to the elect, then it must sound to you very foreign because the vast majority of evangelicals and the vast majority of evangelical churches today preach, teach, and believe that Christ died for the sins of every single person who has ever lived, for those who presently are alive today, and for all those who will be alive at some point in the future. In other words, they say that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, the entire world, by which they mean every single person in the world, without exception. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce summed up in his book, it's a very good book, if you want to read it, I highly recommend it. It's called Doctrines of Grace. He summed up how Christ's atonement is viewed by various groups today within the sphere of Christendom. And in doing so, Dr. Boyce has defined the basic difference. He's nailed down the basic difference between those who are non-Calvinistic in their theology and those who are Calvinistic in their theology in terms of who they believe Jesus died for. Here's what Dr. Boyce wrote. He said, when we speak of particular redemption, by that he means limited atonement, we have to acknowledge that Reformed thinkers, by which he means Calvinists, occupy a minority position within Christendom today. Though that was not always true in church history. We believe that the doctrine is biblical, but we recognize that large segments of today's church see things differently. The opposite view to particular redemption is universal redemption. And if one asks informed Roman Catholics, knowledgeable members of the Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox communities, or even Orthodox Lutherans, they will say that this is what they believe. These people all believe that Jesus died for all men and women, and that the only thing that keeps them from the benefits of his death is their unbelief or lack of faith. Those who hold to the Reformed position affirm that Jesus died for a select number of people, those whom the Father specifically had given him, that his atonement accomplished their salvation, and therefore that all of these are certain to be saved. End of quote. So according to Dr. Boyce, the basic difference then between non-Calvinists and Calvinists concerning their view of the atonement is that non-Calvinists believe that Christ paid for the sins of everyone and that it is only the unbelief of an individual that prevents him or her from experiencing the salvation benefits of his death. While Calvinists, on the other hand, believe that Christ died only for the elect and that his death actually accomplished or achieved their redemption, and therefore they are certain to experience salvation. But having said that there is a basic difference in the way that non-Calvinists and Calvinists view the atonement in terms of its extent, I also want you to know that there are two essential truths about the atonement that all believers in Christ, regardless of whether they're non-Calvinists or Calvinists, agree on what we all agree on. So in order to try to make this the case for the doctrine of limited atonement as clear as possible, I want to first state what all Christians agree on concerning the atonement. And then I want to explain to you the core issue that non, where non-Calvinists and Calvinists really 
differ concerning the atonement. And it's not simply the question of for whom did Christ die. No, it's, it's, it's much deeper than that. It's even more significant than that. And it's important for us to understand this difference because it will help to clarify for you the true nature of our Lord's atonement. So, first of all, we need to understand that all true Christians, all, agree on the value of Christ's atonement, meaning that all who are born again, all born again believers, believe that there was absolutely no inadequacy in Christ's death that it was and it is of infinite value and worth. One theologian put it this way. He said Christ's obedience and suffering were of infinite value. And if God had so willed, the satisfaction rendered by Christ would have saved every member of the human race. So both non-Calvinists and Calvinists agree that the value the value of Christ's death was totally sufficient to atone for the sins of every single person if that was the will of God. Secondly, regardless of whether or not someone believes in all the five points of Calvinism, all true believers agree that salvation comes solely by trusting Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. You see, all born-again believers, regardless, regardless of where they stand on Calvinism, affirm that salvation is by grace through, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that no one is saved by their good works. In fact, if they don't believe this, then they aren't Christians. Because a Christian, according to the Bible, is someone who has repented of their sins and trusted Christ and his death as the sole basis for their salvation. So, regardless of which theological camp you are in, non-Calvinist or Calvinist, when it comes to the atonement of Christ, every true believer is in agreement on those two issues that I've just mentioned. The value of the atonement and that salvation is based solely on Christ's atoning work on the cross. We're all agreed on that. However, and it is a big however, there is an issue concerning the atonement upon which Calvinists and non-Calvinists are not at all in agreement. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, it's not simply a, a question of how many people Christ died for, whether the elect or everyone in the world. So listen very carefully, because what I'm about to tell you is the heart, the true heart of the issue that divides Calvinists and non-Calvinists, and it has to do with the proper understanding of the very nature of the atonement, what actually took place when Jesus died on the cross. See, the whole question over limited atonement comes down to this. Did Jesus and his death on the cross actually accomplish salvation for anyone or Did his death only make it possible for someone to be saved? In other words, did Christ's atonement actually secure salvation for those for whom he died? Or did his atonement only make salvation possible if someone should choose to believe in Jesus? So let me try to clarify this issue and the question that I've just put before you. And I want to do it by quoting from a very fine book on Calvinism in which the authors, there are several authors of this book, lay out the central difference between the way Calvinists see the atonement of Christ 
and the way non-Calvinists see it. So I want you to listen closely because folks, as I said, this is the critical issue in understanding the primary argument of those who espouse limited atonement. The authors write this, Calvinism has consistently maintained that Christ's redeeming work was definite in design and accomplishment, that it was intended to render satisfaction for certain specified sinners and that it actually secured salvation for these individuals and no one else. The salvation which Christ earned for his people included everything involved in bringing them into a right relationship with God, including the gifts of faith and repentance. Christ did not die simply to make it possible for God to pardon sinners. Neither does God leave it up to sinners to decide whether or not Christ's work will be effective. On the contrary, all for whom Christ sacrificed himself will be saved infallibly. Redemption, therefore, was designed to bring to pass God's purpose of election. Non-Calvinists hold that Christ's saving work was designed to make possible the salvation of all men on the condition that they believe, but that Christ's death in itself did not actually secure or guarantee salvation for anyone. Since not all men will be saved as the result of Christ's redeeming work, a limitation must be admitted. Either the atonement was limited in that it was designed to secure salvation for certain sinners, but not for others, which is what Calvinists believe, or it was limited in that it was not intended to secure salvation for any, but was designed only to make it possible for God to pardon sinners on the condition that they believe, which is what non-Calvinists hold to. In other words, one must limit its design either in its extent, meaning it was not intended for all, or in its effectiveness, meaning that it did not actually secure salvation for anyone. Now, I want you to notice, I want you to notice the specific words that these authors use in describing how Calvinists view the atonement. They used words like definite in design and accomplishment. They use words intended to render satisfaction. They've used the, the word secured salvation. You see, these words are highly Significant. In fact, they're critical because they reveal what lies at the heart of the difference between Calvinists and non-Calvinists in their view of Christ's atonement. Calvinists believe that when Jesus died, note this, his death actually accomplished salvation for those for whom he died rather than make it only possible for someone to be saved. Now, I hope you see the difference. Calvinists believe that Christ's death did actually redeem us, that his death did actually reconcile us, that his death was a real atonement for our sins, that his sacrifice did actually satisfy the wrath of God. But the alternative, alternative to this view of the atonement is the non-Calvinist view that Christ's death wasn't an actual redemption or an actual reconciliation or an actual atonement or an actual satisfaction of the wrath of God, but rather that his death only made, note this, only made redemption, reconciliation, atonement, and satisfaction possible depending upon if a sinner repents of his sin and believes in Jesus. If they do... Then and only then does Christ's work on the cross become effective. 
Now, I want us to think this thing through. Because as I said a few moments ago, this is really, this is really the heart, the core of the matter concerning limited atonement. This is it. Did Christ's death actually accomplish anything for anyone? Or did it merely make it possible to accomplish something if someone should choose to accept Christ? Here's another way to put it. Was Christ's death a real substitutionary atonement so that it actually saved people by what it accomplished on the cross? Or was it a theoretical substitutionary atonement dependent upon the will of man to make it successful? And let me explain what's behind all this talk about Christ securing salvation or making salvation only possible by asking you, I want to ask you to think with me, to consider the meaning of certain terms, certain words, certain concepts that the Bible uses in connection with the death of Christ. You see, either these terms, these words, these concepts explain what was actually accomplished by Christ's death, or we have to redefine these words, these concepts, these terms, and thus conclude that Christ's death did not accomplish what Scripture says it accomplished. So let's take, for example, the word redemption, a great New Testament word. It essentially means to purchase something or to buy something back. And in the context of the cross of Christ, it's used to speak of his death purchasing us, buying us back from the bondage of sin and slavery so that we might be indeed set free. So, for example, we read in Galatians chapter 3, Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now consider the following words about redemption from one Bible teacher who challenges us to understand the real nature of Christ's death as it relates to redemption. Here's what he writes. He says, now let's ask the question, what kind of redemption would it be in which the death of Jesus only makes redemption possible and in which, as a result, some of those for whom he died are still in bondage? Imagine that a friend of yours is in trouble with the law and has been taken to jail. He's arraigned before a judge and the bail is set. He has no money, but you hear of his plight and immediately take money down to the courthouse to bail him out. You appear before the judge, pay the bail price, and go home. Your wife asks, where's your friend? He's in prison, you say. In prison, she asks. But didn't you take the bail money down there? Yes, you say. I paid the money to redeem him, but he's still in prison. I didn't actually bring him out. What kind of redemption would that be? If there is a real redemption, then the person who has been redeemed must be set free. When the Bible says that Jesus redeemed us by his death on the cross, that redemption must be an effective redemption, and those who have been redeemed must be actual beneficiaries of it. See, folks, as I said, this is the primary argument for the doctrine of limited atonement, that Christ's death actually accomplished what the Bible says it accomplished. So that when Scripture says that Christ's death was a redeeming death, it means exactly that, that it was an effective redemption that will, with absolute certainty, guaranteed, 
be experienced by those for whom Christ died, meaning the elect. Otherwise, you really have no, you really have no redemption at all, but only a death that is, note this, potentially redemptive because it's at the mercy of man's decision as to whether or not he chooses to accept Christ's death and therefore make his death redemptive. See, it all comes down to this. Either Christ's death accomplished what the Bible says it accomplished or else it just didn't. This basic principle holds true then for for all of those terms that the Bible, the New Testament uses to explain the meaning of the death of Christ. Redemption, propitiation, reconciliation, atonement, etc. If we're going to take language at face value and that's all you can do, we can't be making up the meanings of words. If we're going to take language at face value and believe the actual meaning of these terms, then we have to conclude that Christ's death on the cross really did accomplish what God says it accomplished. That is to say that Jesus didn't come to merely make redemption possible or propitiation possible or reconciliation possible or atonement possible if only people choose to accept Christ's sacrifice. No, he came to redeem his people. He came to reconcile his people. He came to be the propitiation for the sins of his people. He came to atone for the sins of his people. I want you to understand, as I've said, this is the heart of the argument for the doctrine of limited atonement, that God's design and God's intention for the cross of his son was to accomplish all that was necessary to save the elect by bearing their sins and only their sins so that they would be guaranteed salvation. You see, this is why some Calvinists prefer to call this doctrine definite atonement or particular redemption because this reflects more accurately the view that Christ's atonement had a definite purpose in mind, which was to save and redeem a particular group of people, his elect. No one understood this better. No one expressed this issue more clearly, and I might add, interestingly, than Charles Spurgeon. Here's what Spurgeon said. We're often told that we, by we he means Calvinists, that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all men or all men would be saved. Now our reply to this is that on the other hand, our opponents limit it. We don't. The non-Calvinists say Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? They say, no, certainly not. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? They answer, no. They're obliged to admit this if they are consistent. They say, no, Christ has died that any man may be saved if, and then they follow certain conditions of salvation. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why, you. You say that Christ did not die so as to infallibly secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon. When you say we limit Christ's death, we say, no, my dear sir, it is you that do it. We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You're welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. Strong words from Mr. Spurgeon. Now, folks, what I've just gone over, it answers the question, what is the meaning of limited atonement? 
simply means that Christ's death accomplished salvation for the elect. That's what it means. And now we move on to a second question concerning limited atonement. And the question is this, and it's an important one. Does the Bible actually teach this? Does the Bible actually teach the doctrine of limited atonement? It's one thing to define it. It's another thing to go to the scripture, which is our authority, and see if it teaches this. Now, the Bible is loaded, absolutely loaded with statements that declare that Jesus died for his people and that his death was effective and that it accomplished salvation for those it was intended to save. However, in all fairness, it has to be admitted that these statements in Scripture, they don't explicitly say that he died only for his people, but frankly, it doesn't have to explicitly state this because that's the obvious implication of all these statements. You see, God specifically names his people. His people as the recipients of his grace and salvation in order to convey that he has a special love, a special relationship that applies to them that doesn't apply to others. So let me illustrate what I mean. If a husband says to his wife, I love my wife, or if a husband just says, I love my wife, he doesn't have to say that he loves her in a way that doesn't apply to other women. It's simply implied. It's simply understood by his statement that he, he loves her. Well, in the same way, when God says he saves or he redeems his people, it's understood that all of this is uniquely for his people and not for others. He doesn't have to say that. He doesn't have to say it's only for my people and not for others. Just by virtue of the fact that it's for his people, it's not for others. So consider the following verses in which the Lord tells us that he actually accomplished salvation for his people. That great passage in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 where the angel Gabriel says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Not he might save them, not he possibly will save them. He will save his people from their sins. Now notice that God says that Jesus will save his people. Not that he'll make salvation possible or that he'll make people savable, if only they believe, he will with absolute certainty save his people from their sins. Why? Because he actually paid the price for their sins and was punished in their place. Again, John chapter 10, verse 11. I read this earlier. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now, in this verse, Jesus specifically says that it is his sheep for whom he lays his life down for. Now, someone may object to using these verses to defend limited atonement because Jesus didn't say that he dies only for his sheep. But as I said, he doesn't need to say that because it's the obvious point of this verse. He is arguing that there is a distinction between those who are his sheep for whom he will die and those who are not his sheep, meaning unbelievers, for whom he will not die. In fact, if you look just a few verses down the page in John chapter 10, verse 26, you'll see this where Jesus says, but you do not believe because what? You're not of my sheep. These aren't his sheep for whom he'll lay his life down for. He said that. These are unbelievers who will remain unbelievers and the reason they will not believe is because they are not his sheep. You see, his sheep all come to him. His sheep all come to believe in him. 
His sheep then are saved forever. He elected them. He draws them to himself. They come. They're saved forever. This is what Jesus went on to say in verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In the next verse he says, and no one's going to snatch them out of my father's hand. And so having looked at two questions thus far about limited atonement, what does the term mean? And does the Bible actually teach us? We now move on to a third question, our final question, a very important question, and it has to do with objections to this. How do we answer some of the main objections to limited atonement? Well, the primary objection to the doctrine of limited atonement is that there are certain Bible verses that say that Jesus died for the world. And there are other verses in the New Testament that say he died for all men. So the objection is simply this. How can we say that Jesus died only for the elect when we have world mentioned in connection with his death and all mentioned in connection with his death? Well, that's a good question. In fact, it's a very valid question. And so to begin with, let's consider some of the verses that speak of Christ being the savior of the world. John chapter 1, verse 29, said by none other than John the Baptist, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then there's the most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 4, verse 14, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And there just are a number of other places in the New Testament that say essentially the same thing, that Christ and his death are in relation to the world. So how can we say that Jesus died only for the elect when we have all of these verses that speak of his death as being for the world? How do we answer this? Well, first of all, it's important to understand that every time the word world is used in the Bible, it doesn't necessarily mean every single person of the human race. People assume it means that, but it doesn't. You see, the word world has a number of different meanings in the New Testament, depending on how the biblical writer used the word, and the context always determines how the biblical writer used it. Context determines how a word is used. For example, sometimes the word world is used to speak of the created universe. Paul used it that way in Acts chapter 17, verse 24, when he said, the God who made the world and all things in it. He was speaking to the Athenian philosophers. And there he's speaking of the universe, the God who made the world, the universe, and all things in it. Other times, world is used to speak of, not of the entire created universe, but only of the earth in the sense of the planet that we live on. In John 13, verse 1, it's used that way. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world. World can mean the entire physical universe or just the earth. And that's what Jesus was saying here. I'm departing from this earth. I'm going back to glory. I'm going to heaven. I'm leaving the earth. At other times, the word world is used by the writers of Scripture to speak of the evil system of society. In other words, the wicked and rebellious spirit of the age or the evil culture that we live in. Paul used it that way in Romans 12 too, And be not conformed to this 
world, the spirit of the age, the evil system of society. But at other times, the word world is used to speak of the world of people in the sense of mankind in general from all walks of life and not every single individual. See, one of the major issues facing the early church was the thinking on the part of some that salvation was only for the Jewish people. So Bible writers went to great lengths to dispel that view by stressing that Christ died for all kinds of individuals from amongst the worlds of sinners. Jews, Gentiles, Romans, Greeks, rich, poor, free, slave, men, women, barbarians, on and on it goes. But note this, they never intended by using the term world to mean every single individual without exception. For example, look at Romans. This is important. Romans chapter 11, starting at verse 11. Paul writes, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? He's talking about Israel. Israel stumbled in that they rejected Jesus as Messiah, but he said they didn't stumble so as to fall permanently, did they? They just got tripped up. It's just temporary. He says, may it never be. It's not a permanent stumbling in the sense that God has set them aside forever. But by their transgression, meaning their unbelief, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Verse 12. Now if their transgression is riches, note this, for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Verse 15. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now, in these verses, Paul uses the word world to speak of, note this, the world of Gentiles. Gentiles in contrast to the Jewish people. He's teaching that Israel's temporary stumbling has resulted in people being saved amongst the Gentile world. And notice once again, verse 15, because here Paul speaks of Israel's present rejection of Christ resulting in, he says, the reconciliation of the world. Now think about this. The apostle can possibly mean by speaking of the reconciliation of the world that every single human being in the world is going to be saved due to Israel's rejection, their rejection of Christ. Of course not. He simply means that Israel's rejection of their Messiah has and will result in some Gentiles being saved out of the world of unbelieving Gentiles. Now the one verse that those who reject Calvinism love to point to in objecting to limited atonement is John 3.16. As I said, the most well-known verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal or everlasting life. And they love to point out this verse because it is assumed that this verse means that God gave his son, the Lord Jesus, to die for every single person without exception in the world. But is that what John 3.16 is saying? No, it's, it's not. The point of John 3.16 is the same point that the Apostle John makes throughout his gospel account of which John 3.16 is part of. That Jesus isn't simply the Savior for Jewish sinners, but he's the Savior for sinners from amongst the people of the world. This is why John includes in his gospel account the story 
of our Lord's conversation with a Samaritan woman. She wasn't Jewish. She was a Samaritan, a non-Jew, and concludes this story by having the people of her village make an important statement about Christ's relationship with those outside of the Jewish community. Here's what we read in John chapter 4, verses 41 and 42. Many more believed of his word. It means many more of the Samaritans believed of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. This is precisely why only John the apostle tells us, includes in his gospel account the statement by John the Baptist referring to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, not simply of Jewish people, but of the world. So then what does John 3.16 mean? It simply means that God loved so much the world of sinful human beings, both Jewish and Gentile sinful human beings. In other words, humanity in general, that he gave his only begotten son to die on behalf of Jewish and Gentile sinners, that whoever from amongst this world of Jewish and Gentile sinners believes in him would have everlasting life. You see, this isn't a statement that Christ died for every single human being, but only that God loves the world which is made up of sinners. And so he gave his son to die on behalf of this world of sinners. Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, men, women, Romans, Greeks, etc. So I think it's reasonable then to conclude from these examples that the word world has a diversity of usages in the New Testament. It doesn't necessarily mean every single person in the world. What about the word all? Does all always mean everybody, as some say it does? No. It's very similar to the way that the word world is used, because all doesn't necessarily mean all individuals without exception. And we know that that's the case because of the way the word all is used again by the writers in the New Testament. For example, Titus chapter 2. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now, all in this statement, folks, it can't possibly mean everybody because not everybody has experienced God's grace and salvation. Paul simply means that salvation is given to individuals from all walks of life. In other words, again, Jews and Gentiles. Another very clear example of the word all not meaning everything in an unlimited sense is Paul's usage of this word in 1 Corinthians 6.12, where the apostle says this, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Now, once again, we have to conclude that Paul can possibly, can possibly mean that all things without exception were lawful for him, because that certainly was not the case. It wasn't lawful for him to break the commandments of God. No, the apostle simply means that all things that were not condemned by Scripture, but were allowed under the category of liberty issues, were lawful for him to do. In other words, everything that wasn't forbidden by God was permissible for him to do. Now, one verse in particular that has been challenging for those who believe in limited atonement is 1 John 2, 2. It would be good for you to turn there and just be open to John's first letter where we read this in 
verse 2 of chapter 2. And he himself, that is Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, the challenge of this verse is that it sure looks as if John is saying that Christ died for everyone in an unlimited universal sense because he says that he was the propitiation, which means the satisfaction for the wrath of God for the sins of the whole world. So how do we answer? How do we answer those who use this verse to object to the doctrine of limited atonement? Well, we all have to examine it a little closer. We have to consider its context. And then we determine what the apostle is really saying. So let's look again at 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. John says that Christ not only satisfied God's wrath, that's what propitiation means, for the sins of believers, but for the sins of those of the whole world. Now the first thing I want you to consider is how the apostle John began his letter. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Here's how the letter opens up. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now notice that in these verses, John stresses what he, along with all the other apostles, experienced in terms of their relationship with Jesus Christ. All of them have the experience, he says, of hearing with their ears Jesus speak, of seeing him with their eyes, of touching him with their hands. And then he states in verse 3 that the apostles had fellowship with Christ and that this little group of believers, this local church he was writing to, also enjoyed fellowship with them because they proclaimed the gospel to them and they obviously came to believe in Jesus and so they entered into fellowship with him too. So John has established that this small group of believers, this local church, whoever they were, they've come to know Jesus. They've been saved. Now in light of the fact that John has just focused on the apostles and this church's personal experience with Christ, it would appear then that what he is saying just a few verses later in chapter 2, verse 2, when he writes that Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, is this, that Christ's death didn't simply satisfy the wrath of God for the band of apostles who saw and heard Christ, and for those at this local church who believed in Christ through the apostles' personal testimony, but Christ also satisfied the wrath of God for all those from fallen humanity who down through the ages he would draw to himself for salvation. In other words, he's saying that Christ didn't simply die for those believers in that day who were alive, but he also died for others who would be born into this world and would believe in Jesus too. 
Now, hopefully, what we've covered thus far has been helpful to you in satisfying some of the questions that you may have had concerning this doctrine of limited atonement. But listen, and listen closely. Even if you didn't know, even if you didn't know that the term world and the term all aren't used exclusively in the Bible to speak of everyone in an absolute universal sense, you would still be able, you would still be able to know that Christ died only for the elect and no one else. And I'll tell you how you would be able to know this. It's by sound biblical thinking and reasoning. See, if Jesus died and was punished for the sins of everyone without any exception, then how is it that there are people in hell today who are being punished for their sins? In other words, how could God pour out his wrath on sinners if he's already poured out his wrath on his son? As James Montgomery Boyce points out, he said, even in human law, there is a generally recognized principle that a crime cannot be punished twice. Legal statutes pertaining to double jeopardy prohibit what lawyers call multiple penalty. If a person is sentenced to 10 years in prison for a crime and then serves his time, he's entitled to go out as a free man. No one can send him back to prison and make him pay for his crime again. Or to take another example, if someone pays the fine for another person's parking violation, the traffic court cannot require the offender to pay the fine too. It's the same with God. God does not punish a sin twice. Therefore, if sin was actually punished in the person of Christ by his dying for it, God cannot also punish the sinner for the same crime. You see, if Jesus died for all the sins of all the people, then according to the acknowledged standards of justice, everyone must be saved because sin cannot be punished twice. But we know, we know that not everyone is saved. That's the doctrine of universalism, and it simply is not taught in Scripture. In fact, it's heresy. The Bible makes it clear that some people, tragically, sadly, do perish because they do not trust Christ to be their Savior. But at this point, I know at this point, someone who has a problem with the doctrine of limited atonement may object and say, but Steve, you have it all wrong. Christ did die for everyone's sin. It was a real atonement that he made for every single individual in the world. But the reason not everyone is saved is because they haven't believed the gospel message, not because their sins weren't paid for. In other words, someone who thinks like this and see salvation as a gift that's already been paid for by Christ for everyone. They also say that God freely offers this gift to all, but he doesn't force anyone to take it. Those who aren't saved and end up in hell do so because they refuse to accept his gift, not because their sins haven't already been paid for. That it's a very common way of thinking, but the thinking isn't biblical. This is the thinking of some. And frankly, this is how most evangelicals today think. But the thinking isn't biblical. It's not biblical at all. Because it fails, and note this, this is critical. It fails to take into account that unbelief is not a morally neutral issue of choice to be made. Like one would decide to accept or reject a gift from someone. It's not like that at all. No, the Bible says that unbelief is a sin. It's a very, very wicked sin. It's a horrible sin. 
So listen very closely to what I'm about to say. If Jesus died for the sins of everyone, then he must have died for the sin of unbelief too. And if that's the case, then either everyone is saved because all of their sins have been paid for, or else God is, perish the thought, unjust to send them to hell to pay for a sin that has already been paid for. This is sound biblical reasoning. Many years ago, Puritan theologian John Owen in his book, Death of Death in the Death of Christ, written in 1647, he attempted to show that there are only three options to choose from when it comes to the question of for whom did Christ die. He said that Christ underwent the pains of hell for, number one, either all the sins of all men, which is what non-Calvinists believe, or two, for all the sins of some men, which is what Calvinists believe, or three, for some sins of all men, which is clearly not true because this would mean that no one could be saved because they would still have some sins on their record to be punished. So we're left then with only two options concerning who Jesus died for. Option number one, It's the non-Calvinist view that Jesus died for all the sins of all men, including the sin of unbelief. But if this is the case, then why? And then why is any unbeliever ever punished in hell for his sin of unbelief if Jesus was already punished for it? It doesn't make sense. The only other option is option number two. The Calvinist view that Christ died for all the sins of only those who are the elect. Now this morning, you have been exposed, I understand, to some pretty heavy, profound theology, and I trust that you've been stretched in your thinking. I want you to be stretched in your thinking. But in the midst of being stretched, you may wonder if there's any practical application to the doctrine of limited atonement, if this is really, is it really that important for us to know? And the answer is it absolutely is important for us to know There is a practical application. It's very important, and I'm going to tell you why. You see, it is in this teaching about Christ's sacrificial death where we begin to understand what the Son of God actually did for us on the cross. That it was a real atonement, not a theoretical, possible atonement, and therefore it perfectly accomplishes what God set out to accomplish, to save us, to redeem us, And therefore, we see how great our God is in that his plan to save his people can never, ever, ever be frustrated by man's decision to reject it. What this reveals, folks, and this is why we have been doing these messages when we observe the Lord's Supper, is it reveals to us how amazing God's grace really is. Because the doctrine of limited atonement, it assures us that Christ's death was effective. Folks, this is where your assurance of salvation lies. So that you don't have to be concerned, well, do I believe enough? Have I repented enough? Am I clinging to Christ enough? As important as it is to repent and believe, your salvation is based on the grace of God found in the accomplished atonement of Christ. This is where your assurance of salvation should lie. Not in your response so much, but in what Christ has done for you. Because as I said, the doctrine of limited atonement assures us that Christ's death was effective. As Spurgeon said, it must be effective. It is effective. 
And it will be effective. In that he effectively secured our salvation when he died rather than making salvation only possible for you. It's not up to you. It's not in your corner. God has done it. It's not based on if you choose to believe on him. He set his affection upon you, chose you as depraved as you were, as depraved as all of us were, and Christ died for our total depravity. In other words, the doctrine of limited atonement, it exalts the Lord by pointing us to the work of Christ on the cross that provided a definite redemption for us. Not a possible redemption, a cross that really redeems rather than makes us redeemable. This is what our God has done for his people. In order to evoke from us the deepest praise, the deepest worship, the deepest adoration, because he alone... He alone gets the credit. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest we would boast. There is no boasting. He gets the credit for our salvation, not us. If you know the Savior, then you are one of his sheep for whom he laid down his life. So praise him, adore him, worship him for what he's done for you. Someone in the early service came up and asked me, so how do I know if I'm one of the elect? I said, oh, that's simple believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I said, do you believe? He said, I believe, and you're the elect. And how would you know that? Well, there'll be evidence in your life. That's the purpose of 1 John. John writes all the evidences that a true believer has. He confesses his sin. He desires to obey, to obey the word of God. He loves the brethren. He hates his sin. He desires fellowship and does have fellowship with the Father and fellowship with other believers. John says at the end of his letter, if these things are true, then you know that you have eternal life. You know you're one of the elect because you believe on Christ. And once you believe upon him, your life will take on these evidences. As I said to this gentleman this morning, I said, do you think an unbeliever desires to obey the word of God? Of course not. Do you think an unbeliever loves the brethren, God's people? Of course not. If you do, that's the sign that you have believed and you're one of the elect. Now, if you don't know the Savior, and in an audience this size, there are people who don't know Christ. Some may think that they do know him, but in an audience of this size, there has to be those who don't know him. Then I urge you, repent of your sin, turn to Christ, trust him, to be your Savior, your Lord. Jesus legitimately invites all to come to him, and that includes you. So come, believe on Christ. Right where you are, just believe on him, trust him. Let's stand for closing prayer. Our Father, we thank you for teaching us. This is, I know it's profound, mind-stretching theology, but we're called to use our minds. We don't put our minds on hold. We're called to use our minds, so I pray that you'll help each one to have their thinking conform to the Word of God, not what they've been taught necessarily in the past, but what the Word of God teaches. We thank you for allowing us to study your Word, to stretch us, to deepen our understanding, to help us to think biblically. We love you. We thank you for loving us, and we pray, Lord, that the truths that we've heard will transform our thinking, not only our minds, but will sink down into our hearts and grab our hearts and be a very part of our fiber. We also pray for those who have never trusted you. Lord, 
We ask you in your mercy to draw them to salvation, draw them to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.